The word of God from Revelation. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please remain standing for a moment longer as we just commend this time to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you see what we see, and you see more. And we have just made a mess of this world. It is a wreck. Would you, in these moments, show us where all history is going? Give us hope, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Ronnie. I'm the senior pastor here at Denver Prez. I just want to begin with an illustration to kind of help us engage the craziness of Revelation that has begun full up, chapter 4. Y'all have waited for it. Here it is. I want you to imagine a world of shapes. It's a world where circles, triangles, rectangles uh, existed, but the truth is they only existed in two-dimensional. That is to say, the squares and the triangles and uh, the circles, when they looked at each other, they only really saw lines, horizontal lines. Uh, so when they looked at the squares, 
or the squares looked at the triangles, or they looked at the circles. They all look the same. They're just all horizontal lines. Well, one day, Mr. Circle was taken into the sky by a strong wind, and he looked down upon this world. And while he was looking down from that vantage point, he realized that the world was not just a bunch of horizontal lines, that indeed there were circles, rectangles, and triangles. And with that same wind, it rushed him down, and he returned to his friends, and he began to tell them about this experience he was having. He says, guys, you're, you're not going to believe this. And what happened to me? I was taken up into the sky. I looked down, and I realized that none of us are seeing clearly that we're actually all shapes. We're squares and circles and triangles. And his friends looked at him with the most puzzled look and said, what are you talking about? What's a circle? What's a rectangle? He says, well, you're not a line, actually. You're like this object with this curvature. And they said, curvature? What's that? I literally have no idea what you're talking about. And Mr. Circle went away frustrated because he realized it was almost impossible to describe reality to his friends because they had no, no category, no analog to accept or understand what he had saw when he was in the sky. And the thing I want you to see is that although Mr. Circle's friends could not understand what he was telling them about reality, it didn't make it false. And in fact, it was truer. It was more true. It was more real than the 2D experience of his friends. And this, friends, is our challenge. As we study the book of Revelation, we're going to find, and you've heard already, some of the most mysterious images. John was taken into heaven, and you and I can barely understand it, just like the shapes. We don't have categories to understand. And so in an attempt to connect what John saw to our understanding, he uses a series of visual metaphors that are really rich in meaning, but they are not exact images. Rather, they're visual metaphors of what is happening in heaven. And those metaphors are intended to impact us, to shape us. And what is happening in this text, as it is described, is actually more real than even our present 2D experience of the world. Now, I know that this is difficult, that Revelation is a difficult, very highly debated book. But I do want to remind us, now that we're getting into the more metaphor, metaphorical parts of the text, this, remember this, what theologians call this Jewish apocalyptic genre, I want you to remember that this text is drenched in hope. These images and visions reveal God's perspective on history and its final outcome. And it does so so that our present moment can actually be viewed and even endured with a robust hope, a resurrection Hope, a hope that allows us to face the realities of sorrow, of sin, of death, and insist that they do not have the final word, but that resurrection life will have the final word. And that resurrection life will one day animate the entirety of this world and even our bodies. 
Y'all, this is our hope. And our hope is our gift to this world. And so Revelation 4 and 5, which we'll all be getting to next week, exists to help, us un- helps, to help us become a community that bears witness to the resurrection hope that we all have in Jesus. So theologians will tell us that chapter 4 and 5, they kind of belong together. We're looking at just 4 today. But they are the central vision of the entire book of Revelation. And it's so central that I need two weeks to get to it. But everything we study later in the semester that comes afterwards is to be understood in light of chapter four and five. And so we're going to see that this vision guides us into cultivating a deeper hope by rehearsing it. You can think of it like um, rehearsing a liturgy of hope. So cultivating that deeper hope comes through two principal ideas in our passage for you note takers. And here are those two uh, principal ideas. First, it is a hope rehearsed through a throne room. And then second, a hope that is rehearsed through worship. First, through a throne room. So a weird thing happened to me when I first arrived uh, to Denver. Like when we first touched the ground, we lived in a rental house up in North Central Park, closer to like where the Dick's uh, soccer stadium is. And we lived there actually for several months. And uh, right away, New City, I worked hard to reprogram that spot in my mind as my home. It hadn't been, but it was now, and I worked hard to reprogram it as such. And several months later, after church one day, I got into my car, and like many of you, I began to you know, somewhat mindlessly drive home, mindlessly making turns. I got on MLK, then I got on Quebec, and then I got, uh, you know, switched lanes, went through some lights, and um, I pulled up to a house, and I looked up, and I realized, I don't live here. <laughs> this is not my house. This is the wrong house. You see, just a few weeks earlier, we had moved houses to the house that we purchased and that we currently live in right now. But for those past few months, I had been driving to that spot every single day, and I had been formed by it in the deepest and even subconscious levels to naturally go home without even thinking about it, to move in that direction so that it's second nature. And you know what that's like. And here's why I share it with you. One of the ways that we are to think about worship corporate worship, personal worship, is that it shapes us in the deepest levels, our deepest inclinations and intuitions to move in a particular direction. We are oriented homeward to the reality of God's good reign over all things. Worship moves us in that direction, shaping us into a people who even in the midst of chaos, In crises, we see the world through a homeward-oriented lens of hope. Now, listen, we all have these different liturgies in our lives, different rituals and patterns that we follow, and many of them are at a subconscious level. And the question that we are invited to consider this morning is, what are yours? What are your liturgies and rituals that you enter into, especially 
in the midst of crises, when you feel powerless, when you feel stressed, when you feel like everything is out of control, where do you go? Or even more, where do you turn to actually cultivate hope in the midst of chaos? Well, Jesus invites us to regularly enter into a throne room in chapter four. See, in this text, centuries earlier, God gave the Jews instructions on how to build a temple. And there were a lot of unique things about the temple, but nothing provoked the imagination of people more than this one part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And absolutely no one was permitted to go into that room except the high priest. And he wasn't even allowed to go except one time once a year. And on that And on that one day, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, he would tie a rope to his leg just in case he died when he was in there. See, because if he dies in the Holy of Holies, no one can come in after him. They have to drag him out with that rope. This room was a mysterious room, and it provoked the imagination of everyone. I mean, what would a room look like that was dedicated to God? Well, chapter four transports the reader into this real and final holy of holies. This is the timeless dimension where truth and reality are revealed. What exists in this heavenly holy of holies is more real than what you and I can even see with our own eyes. And what do we find? Thrones. Thrones. The word throne in that passage we had read for us today is repeated 14 times. Thrones are the symbol of supreme power. Kings sit on thrones. In those days, kings are also judges. And so the, all, the, all the images are, are laden with these sort of judicial overtones. All of the most powerful kings of the world, whether good or evil, stand and are judged before the supreme king. God is sovereign and ruling over it. Every human interaction, all human history is easily managed under the rule of God. And around these thrones, you can see verse 3, our our rainbow. Look at verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of an emerald. And that rainbow is is this reminder, this echo of Noah, right? His rainbow of both grace and wrath. Both are in full display. And then the voice of Jesus is depicted like a trumpet. Look at verse 1. Just says, after, I lo- after this I looked, behold, a door standing open in heaven, the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And later we hear that there are peals of thunder and claps of lightning or however that is described. This metaphor, right? What is that? It's an echo of what? Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, right? Remember when the trumpet sounded? 
Moses alone was given permission to walk up the mountain while the rest of the people were not even allowed to touch the mountain lest they be consumed. The sound of trumpets scared the people and they trembled because God is unapproachable like the mountain. And in chapter four, we see this trumpet again and it's the voice of Jesus and we're reminded of his authority and power. His purposes are unapproachable His purposes are unmovable and unquestionable. And we tremble, but so does every other living thing. Angels, kings, elders, every living creature. And and at a glance, we can kind of grasp how all living things, whether good or evil, all history, every single event is in full submission to this supreme king. And all of this is to show us how limited our vision is of God. No matter how big we think God is, he is infinitely bigger still. All all realities, whether subatomic realities or realities of the vast universe, all are in submission to God. He is supremely ruling and in control. We don't even have categories to understand this kind of power and authority. And here's the point. The hope we need comes by regularly seeing God's throne room and his power. See, some of the most recurring words in the, in the book of Revelation are what? They're look, behold, see. And in our text, that is intensified over and over again. We are invited to see his power. It's why he is at the very center of everything. Everything in this vision is ordered and organized around him. This vision is pulling back the curtain of reality and revealing the true locus of power in the universe. And it resides in and with God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the one from whom all power is derived and to whom all power must eventually give account. And listen, this vision of God on a throne is our hope. Why is that? Because if this is true, then even our darkest nightmares come to kneel before this God. And it changes our view of suffering. Although suffering is still, you know, shrouded and and covered in mystery, our suffering is not in vain. God is sovereign over them. Sin and misery and tragedy are fully reversible realities that are in full submission to God's throne. And precisely because they are reversible, it means that we can courageously follow this king. Even if it means giving up our rights. Even if it means giving up our comforts and our lives. We don't have control, but we don't have to despair. Because God is bigger than even what we can comprehend We don't have to ask, why did God let this happen? Because those realities are fully reversible and fully in submission to God himself. He is not finite like you, like me. He can make all things true and untrue at his good pleasure. 
The earliest recipients of this book were overwhelmed by the forces of power that made their world and their lives like feel out of control. And yet in this vision, there is this deep assurance that though this world and though your life may feel chaotic and disordered, though you may feel powerless to endure, what is before you, your God He is on the throne of all thrones and he reigns over all realities and all things. Hope is here rehearsed. It's rehearsed by regularly bringing us into this new holy of holies, this throne room. And that is our first point, hope rehearsed through a throne room. But now hope rehearsed through worship. So fall is upon us, and uh, that means bronco fever is in full swing. You know, Americans are crazy about football. Living outside the United States, I didn't realize how crazy it was, but it is. And uh, NFL is one of the highest grossing sports in the world. Football is a multi-billion dollar enterprise. And at a very young age, we teach and catechize our children about the world of football. We teach them about the culture and the rules, and especially the home team. And during the week, we'll, we'll make sure that we have a quiet time to set apart to begin studying the statistics, right? The object of our adoration, the object of our loyalty. We'll memorize all the statistical information, wins, losses, fantasy matchups. We discuss the merits of our team with our friends and family. And then Sunday, Sunday arrives. And like a worship service, we will give our money to football through merchandise. And during the service, I I mean the game, (laughs) our posture will change. We stand up, we sit down, just like we do here. We cheer, we sing songs. Our knowledge from studying the statistics is now transformed into deep emotions of happiness and ecstasy. And if our team wins, it fills our emotional tanks and we are armed with the emotional resources to have a great week. But we must do it every week. This is worship. This is worship. Don't you see? Human beings have an insatiable appetite to set our hearts upon something bigger than themselves in order to have meaning in this world. We need something that can support our obsessions. We need something that we can look to in order to console ourselves. For some, it's sports. For others, it's sex. For some, it's work or money. For some, it's our children, or maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but everyone worships something. No one can escape it. And people who naively think that they do not worship anything are really only worshiping themselves or the control that they maintain over their own emotions. We were designed to worship, and we cannot emotionally survive without it. And so the object of our worship becomes 
infinitely important because the, because the worship we do in this life is a rehearsal for the worship that we will enjoy for all, all eternity. See, worship engages every part of us, our intellectual and emotional sides. It sets our logic on fire and it, it directs our obsessions. We must worship the Lord because if we don't, our obsessions will be directed towards things that will crush us and let us down and ultimately lead to our own self-destruction. See, worship, although often it is unconscious, is our default setting. Everybody worships. And so in Revelation 4, we're invited to peek into heaven. And what is it that we're seeing? It's worship. The entire trajectory of human history is moving towards this end. Worship is the distinguishing trait of heaven and its chief purpose for which we were all created. This life is a rehearsal for the complete and perfect worship that we will experience in heaven. In verse 4, we see these 24 elders worshiping. And this imagery represents the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant moving towards the 12 disciples in the New Testament and the New Covenant, the, the Old and the New merging together on all of history, all of history worshiping together. And then you see in verse 6 and 7, we see these four peculiar creatures, a creature in the likeness of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And the scholars tell us that this imagery is meant to represent the entirety of living beings, land creatures, creatures of the air, domesticated animals, wild animals, dumb ones, smart ones. All of them are the same. They all worship. And the text tells us that these creatures, verse 6, are full of eyes in front and behind. That's weird. <laughs> what does it mean? It graphically shows us that their eyes and their gaze are fixed on the Lord. They have front row seats to his majesty. They have finally met their maker and they're enchanted. And what do all the participants do? They sing together. Not alone, together. Verse 8, holy, 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit is the one Lord God Almighty. And not only that, in verse 10, at the end, it says, and they, the, the, the 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne. All of their achievements, all of their wealth in the world is all given back to God. Like it's all his. Like they, those, are, those are borrowed crowns. He is to be credited. And what do they do? Verse 11, worship, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive all glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your goodwill they existed and were created. And the intent of all that rich imagery is to say that all things, all things, Things are centered upon God himself. He is our dwelling place. He is the center of our hope. This 
unbroken worship is the heartbeat of reality itself. And we are invited to join in the chorus. It should not be surprising because one of the implicit claims throughout the Bible is that we are made, designed to sing music, poetry, singing, resonant at the deepest levels of our humanity. In the very first chapter of the whole Bible, the creation story, you see there it has this poetic call and response that that is actually built into creation. Creation mirrors not only poetry, music, and song. Creation reportedly is responding to the power and the glory of the creator, offering its own self back to God in praise and song. See, the Bible is unashamedly, it unashamedly speaks of things like heavens declaring the glory of the Lord or rivers clapping their hands, mountains singing his praise. And when you consider that human beings are made in the image of a triune God who eternally exists in the perpetual dance of delight in one another, it is not surprising then that we are made to lead in this chorus of singing to God, our creator and our redeemer. It's why, you guys, the very first words spoken by the first human being, by Adam, was a song. (laughs) Bone of my bone. He sings. That's his first recorded word, poetry, as he marveled at God's creation of a companion. It's why all the redemptive events, the big ones in the Bible, are always followed up by poetry and singing everywhere. Israel going through the Red Sea, Exodus 14. What's Exodus 15? A song about Israel going through a sea. They have to worship. Singing transports us into this rich imagery and poetry that moves us beyond prose into the deepest language that we have You see, when we sing, we are rehearsing the liturgy of hope, what we are made to do, to see the throne and power of God, to sing and to praise God. In music, it's logical and and mathematical. It's it's algorithms engage our minds, but at the same time, it floods our, our souls with poetry and emotions. We feel what we sing Singing with each other is a way of relating to God that engages our entire being, its truth, and spirit. The thing that sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom is that we worship. The question is not if you worship, it's what do you worship? Because even atheists worship. And the object of your worship shapes who you are. And not only were we designed to worship, but we actually have a universal need to worship. It organizes our life. And so very briefly, I just want to walk through some application about what this looks like in our lives. Because I'm not just here saying, please sing. That's not what I'm doing. I want you to understand singing's subversive power. Seeing God's power at a throne, at, in a throne room, point one, and singing about it, point two, these things have a relationship. See, first century Christians, they lived in a world that in many ways felt as if it was in total chaos. 
on the verge of crisis. And into that experience of their own powerlessness, they were invited into this vision to see and sing true power, to see where it resides and how it's redefined by God himself. It served to console those who were faithfully following Jesus. And often it felt foolish at first. But the singing also served to confront those who were actually seeking hope in all the alternate parodies of power that exist in this world. And it has a similar role in the lives of modern worshipers at a very practical level. Look, every one of us in this room knows the experience of powerlessness. We know the struggle that we feel to be in control. You want to be in control, and when that's slipping away from us, I mean, we do all kinds of crazy things. I mean, what do you do in those seasons of perceived powerlessness? Where is it that do you look for hope? You see, we often actually do give ourselves to the work of beholding, of fixing our gaze, of fixing our eyes, the eyes of our heart on something to actually give us some sense of solace and peace. But we're doing it wrong. What do we do? In the midst of our stress, what will we do? We'll pull out our cell phones and start scrolling on our phones, just scrolling on Instagram or Facebook, whatever it is, because we want a momentary reprieve from reality. We, we just want to feel safe for a minute and just ignore everything else. Or some of us will work longer hours, sacrifice fellowship, sacrifice family in a feeble attempt to recover some sense of control. And fam, listen, the invitation here is to look upward and outward, to behold and to fix your gaze on God. He made all things. He is sustaining it, and he is caring for it at this very moment. All power resides in him, and he is good. He has redefined power itself. He's even laid down his life for you. I truly believe that we all need to relearn our view of spiritual practices at this church, things that seem mundane, like scripture reading, prayer, corporate worship, going to a small group, we need to see these things as an invitation to turn and see the very power of God. That there is one who sits on the throne even now and reigns with love and that you belong to him so much so that not a hair can fall from your head without his will and approval and, he, and that he has got you and that he will keep you to the end. And that is the truest thing about you if you are a Christian. You need to see that you need that power and that that is where your hope in this life is found and in nothing else. And then there's this other aspect, you know, singing God's praise that you, that you have to remember again and again that you're made to sing his praises and that it really works. And here's how. See, what we see in this text is, is kind of this reactive thing. You, you see something glorious and then we naturally begin to sing about it. 
And we do this all the time, right? We see something beautiful, and what do we do? We just start talking about it. That's why looking at the Grand Canyon alone is kind of painful at times. You need to just talk about it with someone. That's what is meant for us as we come to worship. We encounter God in all kinds of different ways, and we sing his praise. And singing is subversive. Right? Against all external indicators, you are telling God that he alone is supreme and supremely beautiful and powerful. And sometimes you don't feel it. Sometimes we feel ourselves in this place of despair. And part of the work of forming hope is actually just beginning to sing even if you don't feel it. Let the songs actually carry our affections along with it. That's why the Psalms are the biggest part of the entire Bible. It's intended to have the most cumulative effect on our affections, shaping who we are. If you'll remember the summer, right, we learned as we did summer in the Psalms, the psalmist often begins in a place of despair. But then he just starts singing, right? He just starts talking, He's just working for hope. He wrestles through it. In the end, he ends up what? Singing God's praise because he's reoriented homeward, reoriented to the reality, to real reality in such a powerful way. Y'all remember Psalm 73? We looked at that one. The whole, the psalmist begins by looking around the world and saying, God, why is everyone who totally blows you off getting the best life ever? Right? It's a question that many Christians will ask themselves at some time. And then it says in the middle of that song that he goes to the sanctuary of God and everything changes. And you recognize that part of what it means to happen, meant to happen as we worship together is that we encounter God's power and presence We see his power. We're taken to a new place, which is a truer accounting of reality than our 2D world. So let me just finish here. One last thought. Listen, I remember the first time I came to this church and you helped me do what I'm talking about. Right? Because I was in a place where I didn't want to sing. I was feeling a deep melancholy of moving from the only home my children ever knew, leaving the deepest friendships I've ever had in my life. And then I stood shoulder to shoulder with many of you whom I didn't even know. And it was powerful. And if you ever just stop and sing for a moment... And listen, stop singing for a moment. Just listen to the voices in the room, right? It is so formative. And it can take you to a new place and to help you to start singing, even if you don't really feel like it. And you have done that for me. And that's what we get to do every Sunday with one another, learning to see the power of God, helping one another to sing his praise. It's what it means for us to be a community of hope, to form our hope, to be a people of the resurrection. And that's what happens here each week, you guys.
I know, I know that many of you can be skeptical of that. You wonder if this time on a Sunday morning, if, you know, skipping the, the trip out to the mountains or cutting it short, you're asking, is it really worth it? I mean, you think, really? Is coming to this service, is being a part of a small group, is reading scripture, praying, is it actually having that much of an effect on me? And you have to remember, liturgies, scripture reading, singing, praying, they're often like eating a meal. I mean, not all of them are memorable, but all of them offer sustenance and nutrition. And they become with time this deep reservoir from which you can draw from even in a moment of crisis. So in Revelation 4, we peek into the holy of holies, into heaven, and we see what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. All of history is moving towards this ultimate reality. Worship is what holds all things together by his power. It's the purpose of life. It is the end point of all of history. And it's more than just singing a song. It's God's way of teaching us to give ourselves fully to him while he prepares us for eternity. He is orienting us homeward. Amen. Amen.